You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 23rd of November 2019 on Monocle 24. Saturday, the 23rd of November. This is Monocle's House View. After another week of alarming testimony at impeachment hearings into the presidency of Donald Trump, we'll look at how much the US president's views are shaped by his dealings with Eastern Europe. Plus, the Brexit party launches its election campaign in Britain, not with a manifesto, but with a 21-page so-called contract with the people. We'll examine what that might mean. All that and the day's newspapers too. Monocle's House View starts now. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you. I'm Georgina Godwin, joined today by the journalist and author Adam Labor and the political analyst Carol Walker. Welcome to you both. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having us. Now, we're going to start in Washington. In May of this year, Donald Trump sat down for a meeting with the Hungarian president, Viktor Orban. Before the meeting had even begun, it had already ignited a furious dispute in the White House. But Trump pressed ahead with the meeting and, as a result, was exposed to another heavily critical view of Ukraine, one that chimed with another he'd already heard from discussions with Vladimir Putin and his own personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani. Uh, Adam, obviously, we know you've got a, a big Hungarian background, expertise. There's been a steady flow of dark details dripping from this week's impeachment hearings in Washington. How much do we actually know about Donald Trump's dealings with the governments of Eastern Europe, particularly Orban in Hungary? Well, there's, I would say there's a kind of ideological sympathy between them. Trump likes Orban, I think, on a personal level. The ambassador in Budapest is David Kornstein, uh, who's a New York a businessman from the jewellery business and he is I think been a key figure in facilitating that relationship for sure um, if you look at what's happened with Central European University, the university that was founded and backed by George Soros the philanthropist uh, that's part of that's left and gone to Vienna and that was really never really a hot button issue for Kornstein he's, he's always rather taken Viktor Orban's side, he said to the uh, Donald Trump would love to have the situation Viktor Orban has in Hungary, where basically he's won three elections in a row with a very fractured opposition and not much prospect of, of that changing for the moment. So I think there's there's definitely a sort of one hard-talking, tough-dealing, very uh, directional political leader with another one. There's a sort of sympathy there. But beyond that, there's a backstory there. Uh, which is actually reaches back to 1920. What happened in 1920 was that the Treaty of Trianon, two-thirds of Hungarian territory was taken away. And that means that there's very substantial Hungarian minorities in all the neighbouring countries, one of which is Ukraine. There's about 200,000 ethnic Hungarians, people ethnically Hungarian, uh, living in Ukraine. And Viktor Orban's government has been very protective of them and keeps saying that the Ukrainian government in Kiev is not looking after them properly and there's issues about language laws and schooling and and violent attacks and harassment and things like that. So uh, that's the leverage that Orban is using and um, also Mr Orban is quite close to Russia. 
And Hungarians say, well, why wouldn't we be? He's right there next door to us. You know, we have to have a relationship with them. So there's complex things going on. And as usual, with anything to do with Eastern Europe, it goes back decades and decades. It's beyond what you see in today's headlines. Yeah. And I mean, this meeting between Trump and Orban took place, I think, just 10 days before that key US strategy meeting on Ukraine with the top advisor who'd just come back from from Zelensky's uh, inauguration. Uh, And what this is all feeding into is Trump's defence that actually it was Ukraine and not Russia that was uh, interfering with the election, Carol. Yeah, that's right. These impeachment hearings have thrown up all kinds of fascinating, complex uh, relationships. And Donald Trump has been seizing on this theory, which has been put out, of course, for quite a while by the Russians, saying, oh, it wasn't us, it wasn't the Russians who were interfering in the 2016 election, despite the findings of some quite serious reports that said that it was. Uh, It was the Ukrainians, they were the ones who were interfering. And yesterday, there was a very powerful uh, testimony from Fiona Hill, who is an expert on Eastern Europe and Russia, a, a British born uh, expert. She was absolutely dismissing this theory, uh, describing it as a a fictional narrative that was simply being put out by the Russians as a smokescreen to hide what they're doing. But of course, that contradicts completely with what Donald Trump has been saying, because he he got on to his friends on Fox News um, for an almost an hour-long phone call yesterday. And at one stage, um, he said to them, you know, don't forget, Ukraine hated me. They were after me in the election. They wanted Hillary Clinton to win. So this impeachment uh, hearing, which is about this phone call that he made to the Ukrainian President Zelensky and whether he was seeking a quid pro quo, whether he was going to withhold US aid in return for the Ukrainians investigating his rival, Joe Biden, and Joe Biden's son, who had um, business interests out in Ukraine, has widened out out into this whole question of who was actually meddling and this wider question of Trump's relationship with President Putin. I know this is a question we often ask, Adam, and and the answer is usually the same. But is Donald Trump really showing signs of completely losing it? I mean, do you call up a a serving president, you call up a television show for nearly an hour? It's uh, it's not standard behaviour. Let's be let's, let's for, for sure. You know, we can have a bit of British understatement. Yeah, you even Boris ima- Johnson doesn't do that no, very often. You can't imagine, you know, Truman or or Roosevelt or Jimmy Carter or, or even Nixon doing this. But I think it's the way that. Uh, he's, he hasn't come up through the political world. He sees everything as transactional and that the guy at the top just says this is what's going to happen. That's how he runs his businesses and so that's how he's trying to run the White House. But life is a lot more complicated than that and there's many more players and there's many more moving parts. But what he's doing with that is speaking to the base because his base, despite all of this, I think a large part of his base is solid. They're not really interested in uh, Zelensky and uh, who might have investigated Joe Biden's son or not. They just think that's all, you know, the Washington swamp, don't care. Well, we like Donald Trump, he's our man, and they're going to continue voting for him. The point is about the the swing voters, you know, how much impact that's going to have on there in the centre ground. Yeah. So, and, and there is this steady drip, drip, drip. And the more the dripping continues, like the drip of water on the stone, the more irrationally he seems to be acting. Because you're completely right, this is not really very presidential. So the question is when it reaches that tipping point. And of course, it's very telling that, you know, who did he phone up? Well, 
Fox and Friends. So he knows that right. on that output, he's going to get um, a, a pretty soft hearing and that they're going to be very receptive to what he's saying. But it, it is extraordinary, the level of detail that has come out. And I think that the, the other thing that just watching this we've been struck by is how many of those who were, or in some cases still are, um, very senior figures uh, in the diplomatic field in um, President Trump's administration are now prepared to turn around and say, well, yeah, this is what I saw. This is what he said. Um, He did appear to be um, suggesting that uh, the Ukrainians weren't going to get this aid unless they played ball on this investigation. And of course, that goes to the heart of the case against him, which is whether he abused his position of power for personal political gain. Mm. And I mean, are we then, I mean, clearly with some of these people, as you say, he's beginning to lose Republican support, or at least they are just not prepared to lie for him. But do you think that that's going to go across the board? How likely is this then to pass through the Senate, the the Republican-held Senate? Well, I think all of those uh, Republican senators will be doing a kind of calculation. They've got a sort of software program running in their head all the time. At what point does this become a liability Mm. rather than an asset? So when he he reaches sort of toxic tipping point, if he does, then they'll abandon him. But I don't think we're quite there yet. Mm. And I mean, it's, it's all the tweeting too. Now, one thing I was very disappointed that he didn't tweet about uh, was uh, Fartgate, <laughs> <laughs> which was this extraordinary story about Eric uh, Swalwell. Uh, he was doing an MSBC uh, interview uh, and there was definitely a breaking wind sound, but it's come out that apparently this was a mug scraping across the uh, table, but it did give the very, very best Twitter day ever in terms of humour. Only Donald Trump didn't pile in. Which yeah, is, which we could have used his input on that for sure. <laughs> He's a demon tweeter. So. He is a demon tweeter. Yeah. Uh, let's turn to UK politics uh, because election season is well and truly upon us here in Britain. So this week, the Brexit party launched its campaign in a fitting, non-traditional way. Instead of the, the usual manifesto filled with policies and promises and big ideas, there was a so-called contract with the people, filling out just 21 pages. Carol, is this the work of a visionary new force in politics? Well, I'm afraid I think it's just a little bit of spin. The Brexit party made this great show of saying, well, manifesto has become a dirty word because people put out these long lists of what they're going to do at election time and then they don't actually deliver on it. So uh, Nigel Farage yesterday put out his contract with the people. When you looked at it, it looked rather like a manifesto, actually. Um, They promised to halve the foreign aid budget to abolish the House of Lords. They were going to cap immigration at 50,000, which is an awful lot less than we have at the moment. Um, Interestingly enough, he said that um, referendums could be triggered by any kind of petition that had five million signatures on it. And I think what he was trying to say is, look, I understand that people look at all the promises that are made by politicians at election time and don't believe them. So I'm a different kind of politician. And that's what Nigel Farage's strength has been throughout, that people see him as not part 
of that uh, Westminster cabal. We've just been talking about the Washington elite. He, Nigel Farage, is trying to pick on the, the equivalent scenario in the UK and say, look, I'm not part of that. I'm going to do things differently. It has to be said um, that since the Brexit party has announced that it is not standing in about half the seats at the general election because it's not going to stand against the Conservative Party. And since Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, has promised very strongly to deliver his Brexit deal, the Brexit party does appear to be being somewhat squeezed. Um, you know, we're still uh, nearly three weeks from polling day. Things could change. But at the moment, um, it's interesting that the smaller parties seem to being, be being squeezed. Um, but the big question for all the politicians, and there was another big TV debate uh, last night, is this one of trust, mm. where we saw members of the audience openly asking their political leaders, you know, well, do you believe in truth? Um, you know, why should we believe what you, you're saying? Um, uh, yeah. In some cases, actually laughing and mocking um, both the Conservative, Labour and Liberal Democrat leaders um, for various pledges that they've made and failed to deliver on. I think we're seeing the end of deference for sure. Mm. And that's tied in, in a way, with the famous interview with Prince Andrew on Newsnight. And when you think really that a member of the British royal family is being asked if he uh, had sex with someone who may or may not have been trafficked, but who was 17 years old at the time, although he denies it, of course. But it, it's unimaginable, even 10 years ago, that that, that that kind of question could be asked or would be asked. Mm. And, and that general sense of the end of deference, that, that institutions are, are, are to be mocked, that, every, that everyone's lying, that we don't believe you. And that's also tied in with Nigel Farage as well, because, of course, that's the Brexit party. And they're based, they're a kind of insurgent rebel party. And as Carol says, OK, <laughs> a 21-page kind of statement of intent is, is a manifesto by anything else, but he bothers to kind of repackage it and saying we're not like them. So there's definitely an insurgent force. There's a lot of disillusion going on around politics at the moment, mm -hmm. which in one way is healthy because people should be questioning institutions. But this steady kind of erosion of... of any kind of belief that anyone in politics has gone into it to uh, help the common good, mm. that they haven't gone into it to enrich themselves, that they're not, not all politicians are liars, not all MPs are crooks and charlatans. It's not very healthy. No, we, want no. a, we want a healthy scepticism, but not a non-stop barrage of mockery, because our democracy does work. And indeed, there was a sense of, there was a pretty hostile audience last night. We saw all the four main political leaders in the UK. And Boris Johnson was saying that the answer to that question of trust is to deliver Brexit because it's three and a half years since people voted to leave the EU and still it hasn't happened. But I think that the point Adam is making is right, that it has gone much wider than that because you saw members of the audience there prepared to mock, prepared to laugh and prepared to scoff at, for example, the opposition Jeremy Corbyn's um, policy on Brexit, where he said he thought it was a good thing that he would adopt a neutral stance in a second referendum, which Labour want to hold, because that meant that he would deliver on the verdict of the British people. Well, that and is pe a bit people, laughable, actually. Well, people <laughs> found that an absolutely laughable standpoint yeah. uh, and were prepared to demonstrate that. And I think that that is going to be the, the biggest question as we go uh, into this general election here, one where on the one hand you've got 
people feeling incredibly passionate. There's there's a lot of um, anger, a lot of fury, a lot of anger and fury being directed at politicians. And will they direct that into the polling booths? Will they turn out in large numbers to try to get the result they, that they want? Or will this lead to a greater disaffection with the entire political class? And I think that is a really big danger in the UK at the moment. Absolutely. I mean, and all the newspapers are now running fact-check boxes and absolutely picking up uh, on everything that politicians say. And of course, there was a lot. And of course, there was a huge amount of anger when on the previous debate, the Conservative Party renamed its Twitter feed. Fact check. Fact check. And okay, underneath it, you could read that the Twitter handle was CCHQ, Conservative Central Office. Um, But people were absolutely furious and saw that as a further sign of why you shouldn't trust any of these political parties because they're trying to pose as fact checkers when of course they're giving a party political view and the conservative party has has not been particularly apologetic about it saying oh we no, were pointing out that's, all the things that were wrong in what jeremy corbyn was saying yeah that's quite interesting they haven't backed down it reminds me of a story about a very famous journalist of another generation called claude coburn whose advice was to other to young journalists, when you meet a cabinet minister to, and talk to them, the first thing you must think is, why is this person lying to me? <laughs> <laughs> so it, it does go back a long way. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, it is, isn't it worrying where we're, we're questioning a, a prime minister who can't even tell us how many children he has? Uh, indeed. And one of the other issues that came up um, last night where people are very concerned about him is that um, this uh, mistrust and this atmosphere um, feeds into mistrust between communities and people were yes. picking up on Boris Johnson's, some of his previous newspaper columns where he had described um, uh, Muslim women as looking like uh, bank robbers or letterboxes and there were accusations that he had inflamed tensions and inflamed t- uh, uh, views between different ethnic communities and it has to be said that Boris Johnson was struggling to answer those points and I think that is where um, this does become potentially quite serious if it's a breakdown in trust not just with our elected representatives and as Adam was saying we do have an elective democracy the vast majority of MPs who you meet are genuinely in it to try to change things for the good. You've got to do that. Otherwise, you wouldn't put up with the level of hostility which mm, they're facing. Absolutely. Yeah. I wonder how Joe Swinson did, do you think, in, in that debate? I mean, it, it was the very first time, really, she'd had to deal with a situation like that. She really struggled. And I think that she thought that uh, as the new kid on the block, a woman younger, um, that she'd be able to cut through and she'd get a more um, positive and sympathetic hearing. But she faced a lot of anger, um, firstly for her saying that if the Lib Dems... um, former majority, which frankly they're not going to, they would revoke Article 50, they would scrap Brexit. And some of those who had voted to leave were absolutely furious, saying, were you trying to suggest, are you trying to suggest my view doesn't count, that that I was completely stupid? And the other thing that she was tackled over very strongly was the Liberal Democrats who were in coalition with the Conservatives for five years sacrificed many of their principles, went back on many of their pledges, notably on tuition fees Mm. for university students. And uh, people were once again saying... Why should we believe you? You sacrificed all your principles in order to go into power. Yeah, that, I mean, that was quite recent as well, the, the coalition government. I, th- 
I think the reversal on tuition fees is, was really a hammer blow to the Lib Dems <laughs> from which they have yet to recover. Yeah. It's a very, and it was a very simple thing. We won't do it. And then they did it. And so, they signed a pledge yeah. on camera that they weren't going to put up university yeah. tuition fees. Yeah. And then they did. Yeah. yeah. So that, no that wonder we don't trust them. them. Basically. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, shall we have a look at the newspapers now? Um, because, of course, as you would imagine, most of the British uh, papers uh, deal with that election debate. It's all over the front pages. That Prince Andrew's been dominating the press. But I think if we go a little bit further uh, into the paper and get some, some foreign news. Um, now, Britain has been bringing back orphan children from refugee camps in Syria. The Home Office says there will be no more, though. Uh, what, what can you tell us about this story? Uh, um, Carol? Um, yeah, I mean, the, the British government has um, slightly changed its views and agreed to accept um, a handful of British orphans. And Boris Johnson um, is saying that this was um, a, a great success to bring home these small number of orphans. But I think, of course, what this highlights is the huge problem that there is where you have got... Uh, it's thought uh, more than 70,000 women and children in camps on the Syrian border um, who fled from various different parts of Syria during the conflict there. Um, many of them um, went out there, some of them went out there to marry IS fighters. Others are women who've just been caught up in this. Some of them have older children, teenagers who've been entirely indoctrinated with this vicious, barbaric IS propaganda. And none of the Western countries from whom many of these um, have their origins in Europe want to take many of these people back. And it's all very well to take in a handful of small, innocent children who've been caught up in this. But there is this wider problem of what you're going to do about these women and children, and indeed men as well, some of whom are innocent victims, some of whom um, were engaged in the fighting. And no country wants to take in large numbers of these people. But clearly it's a very dangerous unstable situation when you've got tens of thousands of people who've been through all of this left out there in these pretty godforsaken camps on the Syrian border. Yeah, mm. it's a big strategic issue because as Carol says no nobody wants to take these people and there's and there are thousands and thousands of them. And so how do you know if someone's been radicalized and how do you de-radicalize them? I mean that's a long and complicated process to de-radicalize someone it demands vast resources. So in a way it's not surprising that Western governments are sort of saying, well, just, you know, just leave them there and I hope it goes away. But it's not going to go away. And the problem is that people who are radicalised are very motivated and might easily find their way back to uh, Western Europe or even to Britain and, and carry out very, you know, nefarious acts mm. if they can. So it's a really complicated strategic issue, which actually demands a massive international coordinated effort to deal with. And the chances of that happening are not very high. And I mean, you're absolutely right. That is the one thing that we're lacking. If, if there was much more coordination... Yeah, I mean, this is the kind of thing that the UN should be dealing with, yeah. for example. 
Uh, the, the UN has uh, international mechanisms like the UNHCR that deals with refugees and UNICEF and has a lot of experience in dealing with international conflicts and international crises. So this, this to me, seems a classic thing that the United Nations should be taking on in a coordinated way through the Security Council and through the General Assembly that we need to deal with this. This is a multinational international multi-layered problem but i don't see any voice there of this happening at all and i think part of that is that the fact that there is no uh, strong leadership coming we used to have people used to look to the president of the united states yes. to take a lead on the what would call the western world get the the rest of europe together with other like-minded allies on some of these big international issues but yeah. we now have in president trump someone who we know does not want to get involved in in i'm sorry in multilateral um international crises like this it's America first. And I think the lack of leadership from the United States um, then makes it very difficult when you come to these bigger international crises. Um, who else at the United Nations is going to, going to take in. the lead to get the ball rolling, to get a wider international agreement and perhaps bringing some of these people, for example, uh, before the International Criminal Court in The Hague. But you've got to have a wider international consensus and somebody's got to kickstart that and take the lead. And most countries simply want to wash their hands of this very complex situation and these potentially dangerous people who are left washing around these refugee camps. Yeah, I mean, it's not something that you can imagine China or Russia, the other kind of superpowers, picking up. Britain's consumed with Brexit and I don't think France has the logistical capability to kind of organise that and, and set, set up that as an initiative, even though there's a strong French connection with many of these people. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. The, the, this is a kind of law of unintended consequences of Donald Trump you know, says America first, that means jihadis will be likely wandering around the Balkans and Western Europe because no one's dealing with them. So the lack of American leadership is a very mm. crucial thing. It, it's interesting that you bring up France, though, because if there is a contender for, for a leader, certainly he sees it himself, is Macron. No. I mean, yeah, he could, he could say this is our issue and we're going to deal, you know, we're going to own it and deal with it. And this comes, of course, ahead of there's a, a big NATO summit coming up and President Macron has waded into this uh, very sensitive issue of, for example, what is the future of NATO? Um, with America again increasingly uh, reluctant to take the lead in international conflicts, if, if America isn't going to take the lead, you've got, of course, this. He, the, the when um, the Americans pretty much unilaterally pulled out at one stage, uh, it then led to tension between the Americans and Turkey, another key. Uh, NATO player. And again, it is this, um, this sense that the American leadership is disengaging from these international multilateral organizations, these organizations like NATO, somewhat floundering. President Macron was the one who stepped in and said, look, there is a big, there is a big problem yeah, NATO here. NATO is brain dead. NATO is brain dead. And we yeah. need to have a look at what the priorities are going to be and how this organisation is going to work in an era such as well, that, the one we're living through now. Well, that's a very... I, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that NATO is brain dead, but it certainly needs to be rethinking its mission. I mean, it was found, founded as a means of countering the... The Warsaw Pact, its aim was to stop Russia invading the West. I mean, that's all gone now. And then we're in a much more complex world with, with many different types of threats. 
and also the, the way that NATO members are involved in that as, is also very, very different. I mean, if you look at Turkey, Turkey is in NATO and, and Turkey's role in Syria and, uh, and in, northern, in, in northern Syria is certainly one that's, you know, engendered a lot of controversy. Mm, absolutely. I just want to have a quick look at free speech. I mean, this kind of goes back to what we were saying and, and uh, uh, Boris Johnson and, and all the terrible things he said. Maybe he should be allowed to say them because that's, uh, you know, that that's free speech. But now what some students have done is, is set up a, what is it? It's a, it's a group or a, a Yes, this group. is students at the University of Buckingham. And it's actually interesting that this has happened at the University of Buckingham because that's a private university. It's, it's Anthony Selden's yeah, place. It's, yeah, it's a proper university, but it's slightly outside the mainstream system. They've set up a free speech club after a journalist called Peter Hitchens, who's a, a sort of high Tory, you would say, polemicist, um, was deplatformed at the University of Portsmouth in February because uh, LGBT students were worried about what he was going to say. And we're seeing this happen an awful lot. It seems to be that the LGB and the trans rights issues are really being used in some cases to shut down free speech, that people are saying that they, some, such and such a person is transphobic and they mustn't be allowed to talk. And then that seems to be happening increasingly frequently. And you're seeing a, uh, a lot of attacks on feminists. There was there's a very outspoken... A uh, very good feminist writer called Julie Bindle, who came under a lot of abuse at Edinburgh University. There's a Canadian feminist called Megan Murphy, who was also uh, very strongly barracked when she was trying to give a speech in in Canada. And there seems to be a, a something in the in the younger generation that I don't agree with that, so you can't say it. Mm. And I'm not quite sure where that's coming from. I think it goes back a long way. I remember when I was at university, uh, people on the far left were trying to stop the university uh, shop from selling the sun because of page three. And there's always been this element on that side of ban it, stop it, ban it. And of course, you know, we saw what life was like in the Soviet bloc, where everything was banned and stopped. But now that seems to be seeping into the mainstream. But of course, every reaction makes a counter reaction. So now students are saying that um, they're going to re-platform the no platformed. And I think that's a very healthy development because, you know, unless someone is saying something insightful, like go and set that shop on fire or something, people should be allowed to say what they want. Exactly. You know, free speech ends with, you know, you can't shout fire in a theatre. But other than that, for discussing ideas, and especially at a university, you know, there's far too much censorship going on. Mm. In a university of all places should be somewhere where people can express controversial views mm. and be held to account. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. and there's nothing quite so judgmental as a teenager. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, thank you both uh, very much for coming in. No time, sadly, to see uh, the story that the BBC is only allowing people six chips with their lunch, Carol. <laughs> My um, former <laughs> colleagues are in uproar. Yeah, I can imagine. Many thanks to, to you both, to uh, Carol Walker uh, and to Adam Labor, our producer. Producer was Ben Ryland, Nick Toomey was our researcher and our studio manager was Nora Hall. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. <laughs>